and you think you've created this agency of, well, you go work on which of these 10 and hopefully we'll get five done and not three, you know? And, and instead you have, you've created the Hunger Games. A disaster, disaster. Like, wouldn't you rather say to your team, these three things are the most important for the company and I want all of your mental energy on getting those things solved? Claire, th th thank you for, for joining the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hi, Claire. I remember we did a we did a podcast like five six years ago at this point, and you had been early, uh, re relatively early in your time at Stripe. Um, and I just learned so much from that. Obviously, like Lattice was and still is like a company focused on HR, but you as like a COO, one of the many things that you thought about, of course, centrally was like people and scaling. So I just like always remember, first of all, being grateful you did that when Lattice was not much of a company. So now I get this shot, you know, years later, uh, you know, you've, you, you worked there a long time. Stripe's been humongously successful. It's grown quite a lot. Like I think when you got to Stripe, it was just a couple hundred employees. Now it's many thousands. Um, and when you joined Stripe, you already had like a lot of very good experience at Google, obviously. I'm curious, like what's something that you believe with like very high conviction now that maybe you kind of like somewhat thought that now you're like, no, I've seen this enough times now, like 95% of the time, this is the thing about management and company building that, that I really stand behind. I think that I really stand behind um, moving out people that aren't working out quickly. And I think I was, I've always been an optimist. I'm highly empathetic. I really believe I can coach to get great stuff out of people. I still believe that, but I think I'm much more impatient uh, with that process now and probably more willing to quickly make a move. I'm on some boards now and I find myself like talking to the CEO and being like, get a move on, like tell, like get this person off your team. This is a great place to start. Cause I think, I mean, I'm sure you've experienced the same thing, but you sit around with any group of founders or executives and you say, you know, how many of you like wait too long on average and like everybody raises their hands. So like, we all agree. So like, okay, so maybe to take it to tactics, how do you, how do you most make this happen? Whether you're thinking about as an exec trying to do this at scale or as a founder trying to remove the blockers that prevent people from moving on people more quickly or helping people identify it more quickly. Like, how do you go from this thing that we all need to do and make it happen more? Yeah. I mean, the first, the first step is you've got to do it yourself. So you're setting the example as the leader. And if you don't demonstrate that you're assessing talent and that you're moving either people into different roles or out of the company that aren't working, then good luck building that into your culture. Uh, so remember that the solution usually starts with you, especially if you're the founder, because everybody is watching. Uh, the second is understanding that, look, you never hire perfectly, right? And so if you look at your non-regretted attrition and you're sort of like, what does that number look like? That number is you playing back to yourself. Otherwise, we hired perfectly, right? And I think there's a lot of companies where that number is in the low single digits. And I don't know. I feel like if we hired 200 people over a couple of month period, you know, do we really think that only a handful of them weren't going to work out? So you kind of just want to look at the data and just first principles, like what 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 is our error rate? 
you know, what do we think it is? And then you sort of say, okay, have I built enough training and development into the system where managers, because the challenge with managers who have less experience is they don't feel confident in their decision. And of course they want to think the best of people. And I love that about managers. I'm the same way, but you've got to say, how do I help build pattern match? Um, There's a section uh, in my book about um, the self-awareness gap where I sort of say one of the challenges I think as a manager is when you're trying to coach someone and, you know, maybe they're getting defensive, but they're really not hearing you. They're like, what? You, you think I show up that way? And and that's the hardest one to deal with because you can't even meet them anywhere near where you think they are. And I think having some of those tests, like almost like, okay, I've got a situation where I think the person is like here and they think they're here. And, you know, what do I do? But like teaching them the pattern even if they've never seen it that many times, you've got to build that into your system. And then you've got to give them tools and tactics and confidence, even when they don't have the confidence. And then you've got to just like ask, I mean, I think through the process of performance assessment, you know, we ask a question at Stripe, which is, would you enthusiastically rehire this person for this role? What you said about confidence there on that point, I think is so important because there's, there's also cases where when a manager and the employee can't even see eye to eye on what the person is showing up like or what the performance is, it almost, in some ways, it doesn't even matter if the employee is good. They're never going to have a productive relationship. And so giving someone the confidence to say, you know what, I'm not even saying that you're not good. I'm just saying that you and I can't get on the same page. And so I'm not going to have you set up for success. This isn't going to work. Yeah. And then I think you just have to have some way, I, I said that, actually, I don't think this is in my book, but there's a there's a thing that I've always wanted to implement, which is when someone moves around the company, right? Um, it's either a good thing because there's a, an opportunity for their development, the company needs them to move into this new role, or it's an extremely bad thing. And it's an extremely bad thing because either the manager is passing on a problem or the employee is running from the law, like essentially, right? And um, I, I've always wanted to have like a gut check where there's like almost a gate where you're like, a, go- a bunch of people have to fill out a quick survey before this role change happens. Because Jack, I think I essentially 100% agree with you, which is like, if their chemistry is not there and they cannot work together or see eye to eye, it's just not going to work. And you're going to burn a ton of cycles. Talk about very low productivity activities. And so you then have a decision, which is, is this a chemistry thing and the person should just move? Or is this actually a person self-awareness gap problem and you got to move them out? And I would love to see some people put some something more systemic in place so you can gut check that, right? So you started to mention like the keeper test, what I enthusiastically rehire. Did you, did you architect or like, did you systematize that? Or was that just something that you would bring up with your directs like here and now? We started to use it as a check and sort of calibration processes, and then we started to ask it as part of the performance assessment. When you really try to pin someone down, you know, people aren't going to lie, usually. Um, you, it's almost like you're doing a reference call and you say, well, is this person in like the top 10% of anyone you've ever worked with? Uh, and, you know, then you're re- then the person who's the reference kind of putting their reputation on the line, Right. Um, and let's say they're a credible reference. They're, they're like, yeah. You're like, okay, is that a really a yeah? Or is that, you know, and I think that that's a similar thing with managers when you sort of ask a question that's pretty pointed. Um, and you say, look, I'm going to log how you answered that for everyone on your team. 
And then say their team is, you know, I don't know, they shouldn't have maybe more than 15 direct reports, but let's say they have 15 direct reports. And every single one of them, I would enthusiastically rehire for the role. I'd, I'd like to have a conversation about that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to create any kind of quota. There's no, you know, it has to be three people. I don't, I'm just saying, I want to have a conversation about that. And I mean, what, what, what are you doing by having that conversation? You're teaching them. You're enforcing into the system, like, like I'm going to scrutinize your assessment of your talent because it's part of your job, by the way. That's the other funny thing is managers are like, well, you know, I got to get the work done. I'm like, yeah, how do you get the work done? Most of you through your team. I mean, maybe you do some of it yourself, but if you can't assess your team accurately, you have trouble, I think, getting the work done. I'm, I'm curious, what percentage of you are you expecting for people to say enthusiastically rehire because it, it it's easy when the fit isn't there or when performance clearly isn't there, but when it's a B plus talent that wouldn't be enthusiastically rehired, but people aren't getting excited to fire this person, what do you expect? What do you do there? And what are you expecting there in terms of overall percentage? You know, I hate to put a percentage out there, but let's say, you know, they're sort of five to 10% where you're like, I should be moving this person out. You know, I think the kind of B plus they're fine is, what, I don't know, another 10 to 20%. But I, I mean, I think that the main thing is what I, what you find, right, is people start to freak out because they are relying on the people they have in the seats. And these people are not bad. And so then you got to give them some ways to categorize. So one of the things is you can give them, well, is this person maybe has some critical knowledge uh, they really know how to do this particular thing, this task, this process. They they own relationships with some key customer, whatever it is. I, I sort of want to walk through, and we've built some of this into the system. Like, you know, are they critical? Do they have critical knowledge? Uh, are they someone who, um, you know, you think you could see moving, but not for six months? Why is that? Like, you sort of give them some outs. But what I'm trying to guide someone toward is you better have a plan over the next year how you're going to act on your portfolio of talent. Um, and I'm not, I just want to be really clear. I don't think it's productive to nail people down on a specific percentage or a specific by next week, you're going to do this thing, right? Like they're not really going to learn the skill I'm trying to teach. The skill you're trying to teach is you've got to manage your talent and you've got to have a theory for everyone who works for you. Are they in the right seat? How am I going to get them there? Or should they not be here? And I want to know what you think of that. And I want you to have a plan. And I think some managers just like kind of soldier on without really looking themselves or their team in the eye. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. I think we all know that we all systemically probably don't move on people who aren't working out fast enough. And then it becomes a matter of like greatness and execution to actually sort of like figure out ways to do that at, you know, a systems level. What about the other side? Do you think there are any ways in which companies don't promote great people fast enough or, you know, like have a psychological bias to peg somebody at who they showed up to the company as and 18 months later, they've actually quadrupled in market value or they completely scaled and companies just like can't get there. Like, do, does this happen at the other side of the bell curve too? Yeah, I think it does. And I think here's the biggest problem. And I, I have been a perpetrator of this problem and I admit it, which is in building fairness into systems, you, you can reduce the outcomes in the system to sort of, maybe it's not the lowest common denominator, but it's a very medium denominator. N meaning you build a system where you kind of have a, 
like, again, these systems, I don't like hard rules, but you get a lot of rules of thumb. Like, could you really be promoted another level 12 months after I just promoted you? The answer is usually no, but you can't make it absolutely no for exactly this reason, Jack, because there are people who should be having much more scope and responsibility much faster than your average person. And the challenge is the system will try to drag that down to like, no, I'm sorry. Like, we can't do that. They've only been here for two years. Or like, what? They've only led a team of five people. You want to give them an entirely new project and let them be the leader? And I think our younger companies will do that. They have no choice. Well, this is an advantage a startup actually has specifically over Huge a bigger company. advantage. Yes. Huge advantage. And so how do you resist that? Is, is it th- And part of it is, again, you don't build hard and fast rules into the system. And actually, I would hope you reward managers who identify these people and load them up in a sort of like almost insane manner. But but I think that unfortunately, most systems sort of prioritize fairness and at a certain definition of fairness over the right outcome. Yeah. So like when you were thinking about doing it at scale, you know, when Stripe had a thousand employees or something like that, were you thinking, I need a system that sort of encapsulates the real breadth of maybe one person is five times more effective than the other and we should, you know, were you trying to do that? Or were you saying, actually, no, the system's going to work for 80% and we're actually just going to give lots of manager discretion. Did we do this perfectly? No. But what the, the system was one designed to identify these top people. So I think one of actually something we should have done better, Jack, is tell them because we knew but we didn't always tell them. So they were like tootling along, right? And we should have given them more recognition. Uh, I think we thought we were because we were giving them more compensation. We were giving them uh, maybe more responsibility, but we weren't saying, hey, you're top talent. And there you go. But point is we identified them. We had differentiated outcomes. So again, they they might move up sort of the levels we had, but our levels were private. So a lot of people, you didn't see it, right? Publicly in the company. Um, compensation outcomes could be different. Uh, I think they certainly saw more opportunities. It wasn't perfect, but I'm proud of the fact that we were watching for these folks and asking managers to identify them. And we were tracking, um, different treatments, differentiated treatment. Along the same lines, how do you think about when it's appropriate to bet on an existing leader to continue scaling versus deciding to bring it, deciding it's time to bring in uh, someone from the outside who's got more experience? I think about this one a lot because I think that it's really about what's the rate of growth happening to your company and your business. Because in a perfect world, most of the time you're betting on existing people that are really good, in my opinion. Like they know your product deeper, they know your customer, they know your culture. And that, of course, they're not bringing new knowledge in. But if you build a system where they have outside mentorship, you send them to, you know, educational opportunities, meaning like conferences, whatever it is, I think you should be able to develop a lot internally. The challenge with any kind of growth mode is you don't have time. Uh, And they often need someone to learn from, and you think you can be that person, but you can't. Either you're the founder, you don't really know, or you're me and I was spread too thin across a million things. Like, am I really going to be able to mentor and teach several different functions? No, that's hubris to think that, right? Like, Ridiculous. So point is, you're looking at your trajectory and you're thinking, 
how do I, and this is the art of it, how do I pick the folks that I think in the next three years can get there and I want to keep investing in them? I mean, I've had a few occasions where I've had a very blunt conversation with someone, which is, I think you could be our future head of X. I can see you getting there, you know, the fastest, maybe two years, maybe four years. And I'm going to hire someone that I think you can learn from. And I, and you kind of have to trust me. I'm not going to let them stand in your way. And the reason you can say that is because the company's growing so much. Who knows what the jobs are in two or three years? I mean, this is maybe in a different era than we're in right this second. But I, I think being really explicit with the folks that you're trying to develop. And by the way, I had that conversation with a few people at Stripe who are now in that job. They are in the big job. And, but I, they did have bosses. Like I brought people in for them to learn from. And actually in both of the cases I'm thinking of in my mind right now, those people are gone. The bosses are gone uh, for various reasons. But I think that, um, I think it's a mix if you're growing quickly. And naturally you must have told the bosses too, I'm putting you in here to teach them and then you're getting ousted right away. Right? We actually, we had one where we, John, John Carlson and I hired someone with an explicit timeline because they were kind of ready to be kind of retired. So how'd that go? This is someone who like may, had already like really been successful, no ego. And you're like, Hey, you're at the point where you can really teach and mentor. And that's, that's a your journey percent. here. And then, we and then need you out. to come in. We need you to bring yeah. in a little bit of talent, restructure the team in the way you think, bring yeah. some of your knowledge, mentor, find a successor yeah. and get out. That move is probably not done enough. Cause I think there are a lot of people who that sounds actually really wonderful for they're in a position to really teach and do it. They don't want it. They don't want the eight-year journey, and it's perfect. It's amazing. And I have to say, I agree with you, because a lot of more experienced people think when they take a job at a certain stage company, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm signing up for five years. You know, I'm signing up for... And if you just take that off the table and you say, actually, can you give me 18 months? You know, I actually could use you for 18 months. And they're like, really? And then you're having a really interesting conversation about, well, what, are they, what could they do in 18 months? And what does it look like to get them to exit? I mean, if you're in a position where you're an interesting company, they want to be part of it, even if it's for 18 months. I think it's it's probably not done enough. I 100% agree. You touched on something in that answer around how it wasn't realistic for you to be everywhere all the time. And so you had to do like these scale type of things. And you had to think in terms of scale. And it's not just because... Stripe was whatever number of people. It's also due to the growth rate and the chaos you were in. Um, like I think probably in some ways, you know, being at a mega high growth 800 person company, you can't be at even as many places as a stable 2000 person company. Or right. No, it's extremely unpredictable. So you were thinking a lot in like systems and you were thinking about like architecture, um, which I try to think about too. I think probably all company leaders are you know, we're trying to do both. You're like fighting the fires you see, but you're trying to set something up so that there aren't so many fires and you're trying to like do both at once. I'm curious what about specifically like communication architecture, which I think is like the gift that keeps on giving when it's done well and leads to so many other things being healthy. What do you think about now when you're advising companies or on boards and whatever, like talk about communication architecture. Yeah. I mean, it matters way more than people think earlier than you think. And what's challenging is I think communication, the team that you might call communication, so PR, whatever, that team is more strategic today than it was 10 years ago. And the reason it's more strategic is because there used to be rules of the game, kind of like how, how 
journalists interacted with you, how you interacted with them, what press releases were, how they worked. And then also there was not the social media maelstrom that there is today. And what's happened is like what used to be more of a like membrane between sort of public communication and internal private communication is completely now semi-permeable, if not more permeable, like no membrane at all. All the employees are spokespeople. I mean, depending on the company, you can see them in different forms on social media talking about the products, talking about the business. And some of the companies have some control over that uh, more than others. So I will answer your question about architecture, but the preface to that answer is you have to do more of this work yourself than you think because you're setting a lot of tone that is internal and external tone. Um, And so with that preface, I would say one of the keys to to scaling, and you know this well, Jack, is like you want these replicable things that are also sources of consistency and stability. And so I think a lot of companies start with the right stuff, which is like, let's have an all hands meeting on some cadence where people can expect they're going to hear updates on our goals and on what matters and you know important announcements. I think the challenge is the all hands meeting, it doesn't really scale that well. Not everybody enjoys it. It feels a little broadcasty to people. It's not as interactive. Time zones get in the way, you know, and so how do you create a multi-channel strategy where there is communication that's a little bit more one directional, where leaders need to send messages. And and then I think there's also creating forums where you're listening, where you're hearing feedback, whether that's one of the you know most popular questions this week from the company, or you know, fill out our engagement survey, but there's a lot of open boxes that we actually read and we respond to. I mean, I think you can set up a lot of different mechanisms, but I think what the architecture looks like is some tent poles of things you do regularly that you know you can scale and and evolve for the company. And then uh, I think there is being really aware of what's one directional versus bi-directional and making sure you have a couple, like it's almost like a menu to choose from. Um, and then finally, look, information just becomes, it's just, in, it scales <laughs> and there's too much. And so being much more thoughtful about what does everyone have to hear? What does everyone have to read? And really setting the culture early of, you got to read this one email, this newsletter, like the sales teams actually have to be pretty disciplined about this. Sales teams often have good comms sense because they've got to stay on top of What's the product? What's the messaging? How do I sell it? And so like take a page from some really good sales teams on what's the one thing everybody has to read every week and and have the company version of that. On the broadcast stuff, I think there's also a way in which like companies can easily get confused and think that you should just have an absolute sort of, you know, gusher of information all the time. Yeah, and actually, what, yeah. And then it's like, then I just tune it all out versus like what real transparency ends up looking like past any sort of baseline scale is curation and narrative, actually. That's right. Really thoughtfully curated. I mean, why do we pay for, you know, the New Yorker or whatever today still? Because it's really well curated and edited. And like, you know, I I really think that's right. Um, Your job as a leader is to pick what's important for people and also to hone your message. Like you shouldn't be saying a different thing every week and it's boring, but you got to say the same stuff. Totally. You got to just repeat it and people don't hear it. Yeah. 
maybe a related concept in that it's the same muscle, but a slightly different application is the communication architectures or maybe communication feedback loops between teams that really need them. So how do your go-to-market teams and your product teams keep, you know, from having like the communication breakdowns or how do sales and post-sales stay in tight communication or marketing with product and with sales and finance with everybody. So like, I'm curious, and then, you know, HR, and then you get, even at these levels, you end up with so many overlays that if I'm, you know, the head of North America sales, I've got, you know, I might have my CRO at me, I've got marketing ones to talk, I've got CX, I'm trying to feed stuff to product, but then I've got the people team and the finance leader who are coming to me saying, yo, the CEO said X, Y, Z, and I'm sitting there like, and I'm, you know, I'm the head of North America sales, and I'm still like, what's going on here? So like, how do you, how do you set that up for success that even your execs know kind of how to make sense of the world? Yeah. So there's, I, I think there's two things that come into my mind and I'm just nodding because this is such a company problem and you have to constantly reattack it. It's an adaptive problem, right? You cannot solve it once. It will not, but I will tell you two things. So one is I really pay attention to what I call the hinge functions and they can be different depending on your business model and, and your org structure. But for example, like what's the role that product marketing plays between go-to-market and product? Usually pretty important and pretty hingy because you have to translate from this is the product to this is the customer. Um, and so it's a, a very special hinge because let's go like down and over, right? But I think that um, really naming that and driving their responsibility into whatever those functions are, choose what they are, and then educate them that this is part of their job is to create that information flow and those feedback loops. Like that is part of product marketing, in my opinion, in this, in this example. The other is more uh, tricky, I think, for leaders to do, which is to say, there's this collection, you just named a bunch of teams that all need to interlock and hinge and, and be on the same page. And I think that in particular, let's just say even the CEO, but certainly that maybe the CRO are reluctant to name some one leader of that collection of functions as the as the person with primacy, meaning you're the one I'm going to hold accountable for everyone being on the same page. Um, and I think that comes from a place that we all understand, which is these are all important functions. You're disrupting some form of power and hierarchy in your org. You're declaring something feels more important than another thing. I don't really care. I think if you frame it well, you can do this. And I think so many companies fall down where they don't say it's the sales guy's job to get all y'all at the same table on the same page about the thing. It's often the product leader, but like name it and say it's part of their job and put it in their goals and tell everybody you got to let so-and-so lead. I would guess almost no one does this because I think what you're saying is they're responsible for getting on the same page. They're not in charge of the decision. Exactly. They are not going to be like, so they're responsible for making sure that there is agreed on roadmap, for example, that you're going to show customers. If you have any kind of a product that is getting into the enterprise, you know you've got to start showing roadmaps to customers. And you know, Jack, that's controversial because not everybody wants to commit to certain things in the roadmap, nor are they sure that things are going to be available. And someone's got to be accountable for saying, I'm going to broker a roadmap that is publicly available for our customers. 
And I would argue the head of sales should do that. And the head of product must participate with full faith and effort. But does the head of sales decide what the thing that's getting launched in May is? No. No, they do not. But they better have a voice in it. And in fact, giving them ownership of nailing down the decision gives them some voice, which I kind of like. I love I love power balancing moves like that. But I really don't think people pick this stuff apart enough and then just say, hey, you're the one. You're the one who's in charge of getting this thing done. And no, you don't own all the decisions. Sorry. Like, sorry, Charlie. Welcome to the big leagues. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Another question on internal comms. It's... Um, <clears throat> It's easier to be more transparent when things are going well. You know, uh, Jack in early Lattice would send an investor update every month and all the numbers are going up and to the right. And not every portfolio company does that, of course, because, uh, you know, the news isn't always as easy to hear. And, and similarly, you know, within companies, um, you know, sometimes there's there's deep turbulence or deep uncertainty about a certain product, a certain element of the business. And I'm curious if, if you have a framework or a mental model for kind of, you know, what is the proper expectation of transparency between uh, between founders and 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 kind of the rest of the company? Because it's it's when things aren't as clear where where people want to know the most. So first of all, I think too many companies value transparency for transparency's sake because it's some kind of I don't know, iconic God that we worship in tech. Like, oh, well, you know, I worship the, like, we know everything going on. I think it's an engineering thing, especially. And, and I would say, no, transparency is valuable in that the more information people have, often the better decisions they make. Like they're going to optimize more globally than locally if they know context and they understand. Um, and so, I mean, I'll just own my bias here, which is, I just don't think, Jack, you said this earlier, everyone knowing everything is actually not that super productive because it can be very distracting and inefficient. Um, however, if you are not transparent at the right level, especially in certain moments, you're going to lose trust. I mean, as a leader, your number one most important thing is credibility and trust. And if I didn't tell people something going on at the right moment and with the right framing, you know, woe is me because I've probably destroyed some trust. And so I think the real art of this is to think about what's what do people need to know and when do they need to know it and how do I deliver it to them in the right frame so that we can do the very best work um, and that they trust me that I will do that. I will share what I need to share. And I think that the hardest ones of these, Eric, is when you don't exactly know, right? You're not sure. It's messy. You know, maybe maybe one of your largest customers is about to leave, right? You're about to churn one of your largest customers. People are going to really worry. They're going to think it's a terrible like signal of something awful going on. But you haven't churned them. You're trying to save them. You don't exactly know. And so you're thinking as a leader, like, how do I lay groundwork if this does happen, but not cause a disturbance if it doesn't happen, right? And, and I think those are hard and, and they're really about honing. I mean, this is where I think you want to have a trusted group that, you know, your leadership team, ideally, we can really workshop. What do we want to say when and how do we lay the right groundwork for this? I mean, here's the reality. Look, we all make mistakes and communication mistakes are one of the biggest ones, which is I should have said something sooner. I should have not said something like it's, it's very, it's very tough to get that right. Um, and I think a lot of leaders, there's like a continuum. They either say too much 
or they obfuscate and you're like coming out of the meeting going, did they just tell us something really important? And everybody's sort of chattering in the, in the virtual hallway afterwards. Uh, and getting that balance is, is super hard, but you don't get it unless you don't practice. Yeah. And it's one of those things you have to just get comfortable with knowing it's never going to be perfect. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing is you can't feel like badly for criticism. You're going to get criticized because you're not going to deliver it in the way that is perfect for everyone because everyone's different. Yeah, exactly. And when you try to make it perfect for everyone with every message, you end up, the only way to do that ends up with such milk toast commentary on everything all the time that, that there's a certain way in which you're not, you're, you might not offend or bother anybody, but you're no longer giving yourself a chance to really delight and inspire either. And so there's some trade-off to that too, I always think about. You mentioned what I what I completely agree with about transparency being one of these sort of like general kind of idols that we have um, in Silicon Valley. There's another one on my mind, potentially, which is around sort of um, the idea of employees having agency. And I think that it shows up in a funny way because I think obviously people want agency. And I think it is, there's a version of agency, which is one of the like deepest human desires. I think though, that sort of like transparency can go awry. It's also possible for leadership to think about agency in the wrong way, where you actually don't give people nearly enough direction. And I'm curious how you've thought about the balance of what are the things leadership needs to give incredible clarity on and direction to help people in actually in the name of empowerment and creating success? And when do you need to let people do their thing? Yeah. Let me give you an example, because I've been thinking a lot about this, which is, um, look, leaders were ambitious, especially founders. You want to get 10 things done that are really important, whether those are 10 product builds or one go to market. You know, you've got this, you've got these goals. And one of the things I see a lot of companies do is say, I'm going to name what the top ones are. So these top three really matter, but I'm actually going to leave the whole list out there. And I'm going to leave the whole list out there because those other ones are also important. I want to acknowledge them. And I'm also kind of hoping that some people in the org pick up the ball and run with like items seven, eight, or nine. Are you with me? And what you've just done, though, is given a little bit of clarity, which is I think this is the top priorities, but then you've created a complete monster, which is that you've created agency for everyone who could possibly impact the bottom seven things to decide which of those they think is most important. And they are all going to have different opinions, and some of them will be biased by what they work on or whatever, about which is most important. And then they're going to skirmish amongst themselves because most companies have interdependencies, right? Where, you know, for me to get item eight done, I need the guy on item six to drop something for item six and do the thing for item eight. And you're, and so you're actually creating a ton of overhead, uh, coordination cost, and some internal politicking and lobbying around those bottom things. And you think you've created this agency of, well, you go work on which of these 10 and hopefully we'll get five done and not three, you know? And, and instead you have, you've created the Hunger Games. A disaster, disaster. Like, wouldn't you rather say to your team, these three things are the most important for the company and I want all of your mental energy on getting those things solved, your agency, which is figure out the best way to get from A to B 
which is our main, most important thing in the next three months. And then by the way, when we get there, I've got some additional items that I would like to get done. Now that's obviously way easier to describe. Jack, you know this, the reality is so messy, so hideously messy, but I've really been thinking about this a lot lately that it's, it's, one of the worst things you can do is to name too many priorities and hope people figure it out. Yes, totally. Postulating a little bit, but I think it's happened more in companies in recent years where you have more, less ex- highly talented, but less experienced managers and leaders as a result of sort of the, you know, just the rising environment we were in that led to on, on average, I think less experienced leaders and managers who were maybe more back in the headspace of, wait, I wanted agency, I wanted this. And so I'm going to lead this way. And it's actually like a mistranslation where you think I'm going to ask everybody what we're going to go from A to where do you think? And everyone should come back to me with where they think B is. And instead it's like, no, no, no. My job is to tell you B and then you, then it's about how. No. And yeah, the agency is in how do you get there? Like, I want to see what you got. Let's go deep on performance management for a couple minutes. Um, what, what do you think is something non-obvious that is critical for people to to, 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 to leaders to get right when thinking about performance management or, or what's a common misconception that you, you see people, people have, uh, uh, on the topic that's important to, to rid themselves of? I, I mean, Jack probably has thought about this more than I have at this point. It's been a few years since we last talked. Uh, he, here's what everyone kind of says, but nobody does. So I'm just going to, which is. Performance management is not the performance review. It is what you do every day with your team. Uh, And yet everyone fixates on some time of year when there is formal feedback given and a formal assessment and a formal review. And I believe that's problematic for so many reasons. Uh, but it is very hard to build as a day-to-day manager leader, build into your own system. I am performance managing all the time. And those formal moments are just writing down shit that we already talked about. Like, and everyone says that there should be no surprises and you should be giving feed constant, continuous feedback, but yet they do not. And they they often have the right reason, which is like, let's just get the work done, right? And I actually believe that. Like, am I giving performance feedback every single day? No, I'm talking about the work and I'm watching the work get done. But am I stopping and pausing and say to someone, hey, how did you think that project went? Like doing a retrospective with them. What do you think could have gone better? Tell me what you're working on, you know, that kind of thing. Um, But I really, I really don't like this divorce of a process from what is actually management's main mission. That's a great answer. H- how do you think about it, Jack? Um, I think like one of the things that I've, that I still miss doing myself all the time, but that I've really come to appreciate is if you do like nothing else as a manager, it's communicating what is the yardstick on which the person's going to be managed or on, on which their success is going to be understood. And this sounds so basic and yet it's actually like, it's hard to do and it's often hard to communicate. Um, it's, it can be, incre- it can be increasingly hard to communicate when the roles get more senior, when you're managing somebody who's got a really wide scope and there's so many inputs to it. And they're not the thing that they're the metric they're accountable to. Lots of others are accountable to. 
And so it can be really hard to nail that down and like really mean it. Um, but I've found that even if you don't stick exactly to it, like even if you, let's say you're going to manage your head of global customer success on retention, and that's the thing that matters, even if you end up at, at the end of the year saying, you know what, retention wasn't where we wanted to be, but for various reasons, I've determined that that's not your fault and I still think you're great and whatever. Just having clarity day in and day out of this is what you're being measured against and or this is what good looks like and what I expect from you in the role and just clarity on the measurements. I feel like if you do nothing else, that's like 80% of the job. No, a thousand percent is like, why did you not lay out expectations in the first place? Because it's really hard to say to someone, you're not meeting my expectations if you didn't yeah. put anything in front of them as your expectations, right? Yeah. And this also probably goes back to the thing Claire mentioned earlier about confidence, where you actually have to have confidence to tell somebody really what the expectations are. You know, it's one thing if it's a sales rep and there's a quota and you're a frontline sales manager and you've been given a quota, like that's that's not what I'm talking about. If you are the head of product for the company and you've hired a product leader for a bet that the company's making, that gets a lot murkier of what am I really measuring your success by and what can you expect from what can you expect to hear from me if things don't go well, even though your inputs felt great and I really like you and all the rest of it. So yeah, I think it's hard. I think it's harder than it sounds probably. Um, and it's probably an area where more of us should have more humility and willingness to seek guidance from outside people with lots and lots of experience to help us. Yeah, I, I think it is, but it's also, I mean, here's some tricks. Um, one, I ask people to write up their own doc. I'm like, what do you think your goals are? What are your priorities the next six months? If you were me, what would you expect from you? I mean, you can help people, they can help you do the work and then you workshop what they drafted together and you sort of say, oh, wow, I thought it was actually more about retention. You're, you're actually saying it's more about engagement results, right? Like, like get, I mean, some of this stuff is more straightforward um, than it feels, or like, I expect you to talk to a top customer every few days. I mean, a lot of these, to your point about confidence are not rocket science. Like they should be obvious and actually stating the obvious is very powerful. And I don't care how senior they are. Totally. I wrote that. I, I love that actually of if you were me, what would you expect of you? I'm going to try that. By the way, Jack, I just want to add into that. And this is an important thing for performance feedback, but I mean, continuous is the most powerful tool that teachers have with students is their students' own self-assessment. And it's weird to me that so much we put on managers and leaders is doing the assessment when in fact, what we should be doing is creating the environment where people are offering their self-reflection. This is what I mean though, very casually, like in a one-on-one, -on -one, you could be like, what was the best thing that you did last week? Talk, you know, you could actually start with something really positive, but that's how people learn. They do not learn from you telling them what's important. I would just underline, double underline, having people write up their own expectations, write their own assessments. But I, when I say write, I don't necessarily mean the formal process. I'm talking about conversationally, talk it out. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is under you. Even though like everyone does the self-assessment and the performance review, I don't think it's given quite enough. It's not given enough primacy. I think you're right. No. No, and I think it's because they're not used to doing that. So they just write checklists of their goals where if you were talking about it a lot, like, what are you learning? Like, what was the best thing? What was the worst? You know, what went well? What didn't go well last week? That's all.
practically. And not to bring it back, not to bring it back to like the manager confidence thing, but I could also see how if you're less experienced, you think that it's really your job to decree that. And also that if it if the self-assessment isn't going away that you want, that you won't have the confidence that you'll know how to coach it back to the right place. Versus if you're very experienced, you're like, no, I actually would love to find that gap where they and I disagree because I'm going to use that as my moment to strengthen our relationship, to coach. And you're actually you're you're inviting that kind of discrepancy. Exactly. Okay. A final topic I would love to pick your brain about reorgs. I think reorgs are like this fascinating management topic that are almost like it, this is like the triple axle of management. It's like the it's like these big important moments that are high degrees of difficulty. A lot hangs on them. The judges are all talking about it after it happens. Everyone's got commentary. And they're important, they're few and far between, but it's not like something that happens once every five years. Like they happen a good amount, like they happen enough that it's a muscle we should be building. So I'm curious how you think about them. Like, when do you know it's time? Who do you involve in them? Just like, could you just like walk us through a good reorg and it's platonic ideal? <laughs> well, assuming I know the platonic ideal, it, well, that I may, maybe I've nailed the quad a few times. We'll see, we'll yeah. see. But um, I would say the number one, I think reorgs often have a bad reputation because they're done badly. But in fact, I think they're a sign of dynamism and opportunity. Uh, I think the challenge in them is it often feels like there's winners and losers. And that is what I think causes some of the problems in executing. And so I want to acknowledge that upfront, but I'm actually a fan. If done well, I think they are a, a chance for, you know, really shifting perspectives and momentum in your company. Um, so, so done well, the first thing, which surprisingly often gets overlooked is why are you doing the reorg? And it should be driven by a strategic decision. Uh, often you end up in a reorg driven by a talent occurrence that has, you know, someone has departed or someone is leaving or someone is not working out or, you know, or or worse, maybe you're capitulating to some demand. I don't love that from someone who wants more responsibility. So let's back it up and say your org structure should follow your strategy. And you should start with what's the most important thing in my business? And do I have the right org structure to serve it with the level of uh, primacy and priority that it deserves? And if your answer is, wow, the business has really changed, the team structure hasn't, or, by the way, I think one thing that would happen at Google is sometimes like what part of the matrix was taking the lead would shift. And it was actually pretty healthy because you'd get empathy. You'd be like, oh, we're driving regionally now. No, we're driving product now. No, we're going. But like going back and forth actually creates some good strategic balance. But point is, start with a strategy. So second of all, you say, okay, if this is the strategy, that means these should be the buckets of accountability in my organization. Do I have those set up? And then don't put any names on it. Actually design the thing the way it should be designed in the platonic ideal. Then look at your talent and say, what have I got? And what you're going to end up finding, I would guarantee you, is that you have some of what you need and not all of it. So then you have a decision to make, which is how much do I want to leave open? Meaning, meaning maybe you're announcing a reorg with an open position. Uh, or you're announcing a reorg with someone who has interim responsibility for two buckets when they really should have one because there's no person should have those two buckets, right? And I think you have a set of decisions. And to your question, Jack, you don't want to consult too wide a group. 
I mean, your own manager, your HR partner. And then I think if you have some colleagues who are implicated, like if you're, so if you're organizing a, a certain part of a company, you're like, well, how we interface now with this other team is going to be affected. I want to, in a trusted environment, talk to my colleague and my colleague has some perspectives on my talent. Like I'm thinking, you know, Carla would be great for this new role. Like you want their buy-in, right? But if you get too wide, one, there'd be a million opinions. None of them are correct. Like there's no perfect answer usually. Um, and two, you don't want to put the horse out of the barn because the problem with reorgs done badly is they drag out over several weeks and people know there's outstanding decisions and then they start lobbying and they get anxious and the team finds out and then the team is like, do we not even matter? No one even wants to be our boss. Like the whole thing is just... So you want to really keep it small until you're ready to do the comms and start to announce. And you make those decisions about what you're going to leave open or how transparent you are about certain elements of the reorg. And then you want to do a comms plan that starts with sort of what's the email look like that I'm, it's like the Amazon press release. What does it look like that I'm sending out next week? And then backing up from that, who are the people that I need to talk to in what order? And so many people get this wrong. It's weird. But there are only, often with reorgs, only a few people directly impacted. Like, Jack, you have a new manager. Like, that is an important conversation to have. Or, you know, Jack, your job is changing and I need to get your buy-in that I want you to do a different role. And so I start with like, okay, if I'm going to get to that press release, that that email announcement, then I need to sit, start with this person who is got to buy into a new role or a new manager or both. And by the way, that sometimes takes a couple conversations. And so you got to book in, you know, enough space in your calendar to execute that over a few days and give them a chance to sleep on it. And then really your own, this is where your sales skills are important. Your own positioning of why you, why this role what I think it means for, by the way, if you've been a good manager, your own development, I know what you your career goals are, blah, blah, blah. You've got to do the one-to-one -one blocking and tackling with the key people. Then the people who are more indirectly impacted, they can find out the day before because really their life didn't change that much. And then you do the announcement, right? You want to really speed that end part pretty fast. And then the real reality of like, how do you make them go well is you get down to operating in the new org as fast as possible. So you have to have thought through what does next week's meetings look like? What's the calendar? What email lists should I have set up? Does mm. that make, like a lot of people don't yeah. do the tactical, this is where you know I'm an operator. They don't do the tactical stuff. So all of a sudden they've announced this reorg and then everyone's like, who's, who are we inviting to the all hands meeting? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It feels messy. Yeah. Oh, so messy. I hate <laughs> yeah. that mess because it also makes people yeah. feel that they're not important and that you didn't really mean it. All right. That, that, that was my onslaught. But I think it can be a great thing. It can mean opportunities for people. And yes, you need to sometimes convince people that they're getting something out of it that they don't think they are. Bringing them along for the journey. Um, that's a great, great note to, to wrap on. Uh, Jack, Claire, this has been a fascinating conversation. And for people interested in company building, the book Scaling People is the seminal book uh, on the topic. It's an absolute must read. Uh, Claire, thanks so much for, for sharing your hard-earned uh, wisdom and lessons with us. Thank you very much. Great to see you both.